This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. From Death by Incarceration and in association with Crawl Space Media, this is Injustice, an advocacy-focused wrongful conviction podcast. Last week, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, newly elected Governor Glenn Youngkin took over for the incumbent Ralph Northam. We aren't going to dive deep into the politics of either. Youngkin is a hard right-leaning Republican, Northam a Democrat. But what we do want to do is discuss a couple of issues in our world that will be directly affected by a new administration. And those items are the pardon and the parole. The pardon is one of the most important tools a governor has in his toolbox. This is especially important to us. I mean, we are the advocacy podcast, after all. Our whole thing is helping people get out of prison. Parole is a little bit different in every state. So, Lisa, talk to me about the parole system in Virginia, if you would. Well, first of all, you listeners should know that the Commonwealth of Virginia actually abolished parole in 1995. So for the majority of people in prison, they're not parole eligible. People convicted prior to 95 are still parole eligible under the old law is how we call it here. And then we've also had a few bills in the last year or so that have made a couple other sections of people also parole eligible. So anyone under 18 at the time their crime was committed after serving 20 years, they're parole eligible. And there's also a section of people called, we, we call it fishback here. It was a lawsuit against the Commonwealth. In 95, when parole was abolished, juries were not told that parole had been abolished. So when they were handing out sentences, they were doing so under the guise that people would serve 20 years of an 80 year sentence, not realizing that that was gone. And so for about 25 years, advocates in the Commonwealth fought for justice on this issue. It was passed. So now people that were sentenced between 1995 and 2000, they are parole eligible as well, which which was a huge victory for here. Parole is a huge topic here right now. The parole board, it's not a cakewalk. I know a lot of very deserving individuals that have been turned down by the prior board, um, especially right before Glenn Youngkin was inaugurated. A lot of people were denied parole. Can't really tell you why. I don't know. Given what we know about the politics of the issue, the new board that Youngkin placed is probably going to be far more conservative than what the last board was, which is obviously very scary for advocates like myself, incarcerated individuals, and loved ones. For the listeners, what 
what we decided to do for this episode, similar to what we did uh, a couple of months back, the week that the Rittenhouse verdict and the Ahmad Arbery verdict and all that stuff happened in one week, is sort of take a snapshot of of what this week means in a larger context as it's playing out in Virginia. We sat down and we did an interview with a man named Sean Winetta, whom Northam pardoned back in 2020. And we'll get his perspective you know, from someone who is actively involved in the system. So Lisa, you, you introduced me to Sean. Talk to me about your relationship with him and how you guys came to work together. I met Sean, I would say in early 2017, while he was still in prison. I met him through a, another friend of his, which was, that was also incarcerated. It was a case that I was working on at the time. And you know, most people behind bars don't really have people that are going to be willing to make phone calls on their behalf or take care of little things that are done in the free world. And Sean and I were friends. And so I would take care of little things for him when he decided that he wanted to create a CPR program for the institution he was at, Haynesville Correctional. I helped him get all of that in place, just making phone calls, sending emails, trying to coordinate between the DOC, the Red Cross, and then Sean and a few other people that were working with him inside. So we've known each other for quite a while. He was granted a pardon, I believe, in April of 2020. He got out shortly thereafter, I want to say in June, and he took off like a rocket. I mean, the advocacy work that he has been doing since he was released is nothing short of remarkable. And I'm so proud of everything he's done. I'm proud to know him and, and to call him a friend. Yeah, he had a lot of really good things to say and look forward to playing that so everybody can hear. Before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the outgoing Governor Northam. And I think we, it came up in our conversation, but the man loved his pardons. By the end of his term, he had pardoned 1,200 people over the course of his four-year term, which is more than the number of pardons issued by the previous nine governors of Virginia combined. And the craziest thing about that is, as I was researching this, I found an article that was dated December 10th uh, of last year. And at that time, which just over a month ago, the number was at 700. So he knocked out 500 more pardons basically in one month. And the staggering part of that is even then, 700 pardons was more than the previous nine combined. That's insane. And then of the, of the 1,200 pardons, eight of, eight of them were exonerations stemming mm-hmm. from wrongful convictions. If I, is, that, is that correct? Is that accurate? Correct. All right. Yeah. What What can you tell me about any of those exonerations? Since that's you know, the wrongful conviction thing is more in, in our wheelhouse. What can you tell me about what went on there? Uh, a number of those cases were cases handled by UVA Innocence Project, cases that advocacy had had been work you know had been ongoing for years. The work on those cases had been ongoing for years, and. Sometimes, you know, things just line up correctly. I think that Governor Northam, like a lot of us, probably felt like in the in this next four years, there will be far less focus on criminal justice reform and correcting some of these wrongs using pardon as using the using a pardon as a tool. 
And so I think that he took that seriously and he, he granted these exonerations. Now, like you said, it was eight in, in 1200, you know, the vast majority of the pardons that were, were simple pardons and then conditional pardons. For those eight individuals, it, you know, what an amazing feeling to, to be free and to have your completely. I know a few people that were not granted absence that have been free for a few years, but are still fighting to, to clear their name and be able to move forward in life unencumbered. But that being said, you know, I am so thankful for what Governor Northam did prior to leaving office. I think that, I think he had the, the retention behind it. It's a little confusing the way the parole decisions came up, because I know that there were a lot of very deserving people that should have been granted parole just prior to prior to this last board resigning, which sucks. But we're you know, we are where we are now and we all need to try to be um, positive and focused on the work that's to be done and not focus too much on what did or didn't happen, you know, this past year. Yeah, one of the other things I just want to make note of before we move on from Northam is the the fact that he restored the civil rights of something like over 125,000 people, including granting the right to vote for people convict, convicted of felonies. And I think that's a, a huge deal, and I don't want that to get lost in, in any of this. It's truly a beautiful thing to see people that have been behind bars, have learned more about the way the system works and laws are passed than a lot of us that are free. And for them to be able to go and utilize that right is a really wonderful thing to see. And I'm very, you know, it's heartwarming. I hate to say it in that way, but it's heartwarming to see these people be given back, you know, some dignity and their and their right to vote. So it's a it's a wonderful thing here in the Commonwealth. Okay, moving on to Glenn Youngkin, and like you said, we don't we don't want to get caught up in thinking the worst because we we simply don't know. Aside from you know a fundamental difference in policy between Youngkin and and Northam, so Youngkin comes in on day one, he issues eleven executive orders. That have it seems that they have really tweaked the people on the left. What can you tell me about those uh, executive orders? Is there anything that applies to our space here? Well, the third executive order that he he did that day was essentially firing everyone on the parole board and also ordering an investigation of the prior board to look for or identify any possible misconduct that went on during that board's reign. They didn't really fire anyone. The board had resigned prior to this, but that was one of the big issues that Governor Yunkin ran on was that he was going to fire this board. Sean talks about it more in our interview and, and I comment about on it too, as to why there's so much controversy, but I think that a lot of people have concerns about how appropriate it is for a sitting sheriff to be a member of the parole board. I think that people have concerns about there's a woman that was a former Richmond police officer that was shot in the head during her her duty, which is obviously terrible. But she did a lot of commercials during Governor Yunkin's 
campaigning about how painful it is for victims to come up and have to deal with a parole issue every year. And, you know, I have a lot of empathy for people on both sides and I, and I can't imagine what that would be like, but what's not really talked about a lot is the fact that that man also murdered several other people that, that shot this officer. He, he doesn't have a great institutional record. He is considered a bad guy and he will never be released on parole. So it didn't really feel for some people, it didn't feel like we were given completely accurate information. And so it's a little, you know, it's uncertain anytime new people come in, but when you see possible bias there and you're worried about people getting objective consideration, you know, that concerns a lot of people. And I think that's where folks are at right now is we don't know what to expect because we haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. And I guess the, all, all we can do is, is hope for the best and see how it plays out. And we don't want anyone to, to lose hope. Anybody that might be in the middle was, you know, was in the middle of, of conversations about pardoning or, or anything. We don't want people to, to lose hope. No. And, and the work continues just because there's a new governor and there's a new parole board. That's no reason to let up or to lose hope. You keep doing the same thing you were doing before. And if anything, you work harder. You know, you stay more focused on the things that are going to move the dial in your case. And you continue to build relationships with people that are decision makers or, you know, influential in the space. And you just keep getting after it until it's done. None of this is easy. This may have made it a little bit harder and it's scary for people, but it's never a cakewalk. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the interview with Sean Winetta. My name is Sean Winetta. I am formerly incarcerated in the state of Virginia. I spent 16 years in prison on a 30 year prison sentence for embezzlement. And in April of 2020, I was pardoned by Governor Northam leaving me about 10 more years of time in prison. Since I've been home, I've, I've been working for myself, and I recently accepted a position with the ACLU as a policy strategist. But uh, most of my advocacy has been with the Humanization Project. I began working with Jen Carter, the co-founder of the Humanization Project in Virginia. It's a group that works to humanize people behind bars in Virginia and nationwide. And I did most of my advocacy, again, with them for the last year and a half until accepting the position with the ACLU of Virginia. We wanted to get you on today and talk about the the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. We have Northam going out and Youngkin coming in. So what what I want to know is what are the ramifications for incarcerated people when there is a new administration coming into power? big thing is the uncertainty. Everything resets, particularly in the pardon process, as well as if there's a turnover in the parole board. In the transition from Governor McAuliffe to Governor Northam four years ago, there was a bit of continuity. Governor Northam had already been the lieutenant governor for four years. He had worked with Governor McAuliffe very closely and part of his campaign was saying that he was going to continue a lot of the initiatives and and further the progression that Governor McAuliffe had started. When you have a a new administration come in, as we do yesterday, with Governor Youngkin coming in, as well as the new lieutenant governor and new attorney general, there is 
no continuity. Everybody has been or fired or has resigned. And the people that are in the advocacy space, particularly in the pardon and parole advocacy space, they have to establish entirely new relationships because there is that there's not that continuity. So anybody that had a pardon pending that did not receive a decision under the previous administration that just went out yesterday, they know that they're sort of getting bumped back. They're you know sort of having to press pause for probably a year or better at least. Yeah, I I, I would wouldn't think, and especially knowing uh, the little that I do about Yunkin, his his priority is probably not incarcerated and getting people pardons. Whereas Northam was a pardoning machine. He, I think, the final count was. 1200 yeah 1200 plus and and it it is fair to parse out what 1200 means and it means different things they are all all these all those 1200 pardons are impactful some of them to different degrees there is what we call a simple pardon which is what most of those pardons were and a simple pardon does not relieve you of time to serve nor does it clean up your record or expunge your record. It is a letter of forgiveness from the governor and the Commonwealth. But it does have impact on employment. It has impact on all sorts of different opportunities that you might have, even even perhaps on immigration uh, hearings. The when you walk into apply for a job, or perhaps even when I first got out, when I, I didn't have a simple pardon, I had a conditional pardon, but even when you're in dating, when you're interacting with people, when you say, hey, I was in prison or, hey, I was convicted of this, but you're able to end that sentence with, but I was pardoned, I received a pardon, it, it goes a long way towards relieving that anxiety that might come from that potential girlfriend or that date that you're on or that potential employer or that person that you might be renting a, ho- a home or an apartment from or applying for a job, all these you know, various different social situations that you might be, be in as well as the different services that you might need to try and access to, in hopes of being a successful. Relieves a little bit of the, of the stigma. Exactly, exactly. It, it goes a long way towards doing that. And those, they, they are valuable. It's a valuable tool. And I, I hope to have a, a simple pardon later once I've completed all of the sort of all of the things that I need to complete as far as I have, still have another year and a half of supervision on my conditional pardon. And then I'll talk about the, the the absolute pardons next because those are even increasingly rare. And the number that, that I was given was that there have been at least eight exonerations since July of 2021, which to put that in context, I don't believe that there's been eight exonerations in the last decade, eight absolute pardons in the last decade from any governor or all governors collectively. And then there is the conditional pardons, which is what most people are applying for. Most people that are incarcerated are seeking a a conditional pardon uh, or clemency is a lot of people sort of sort of, I think, more familiar with that word. Conditional pardon relieves you of a period of incarceration. That's what I received. I had a 30 year sentence. I had 10 more years to serve. And the governor issued me a conditional pardon, which sent me home right away. It has conditions of behavior. Hey, we want you to do this and that and the other thing. We want you to, let's say, attend substance abuse treatment or participate in this sort of programming. You'll be under supervision for three years and we want you to pay restitution. So those are what conditional pardons do. When I received my pardon in April of 2020, 
I was the 48th conditional pardon issued in 12 years. And, and the governor issued an additional 20, 20 some pardons in 2020. We have not, of course, received the 2021 report yet. That'll come out probably in March. But we expect, we believe that the number is well over 100 conditional pardons have been issued that have relieved people of some period of incarceration. And that is more than the rest of, more than any governor, certainly in history. And we believe it'll add up to more than, than any governor, but than all governors combined in, in the history of the Commonwealth. We'll pick it up on the other side of this break as we listen to a word from today's sponsors. I don't, I mean, obviously I'm thrilled with the pardons that were granted, but I also know that there were still a lot of people left behind. We talked about the absolute pardons that Sean mentioned and people they're having their names fully clear. And there were several people that I know personally that I had a bit of a, I don't know, I hold close to my heart or, or had hoped that would be pardoned, Darnell Phillips being one of them. He was given a conditional pardon in 2018 by Governor McAuliffe. He has not only DNA evidence proving that he did not commit the crime, but also the victim of the crime, explaining that she was coerced. And that's why she had identified him. She was 10 years old at the time. Darnell has been out for four years now and deserved an absolute pardon that would allow him to move forward unencumbered. Messiah Johnson is another person. Darnell lost 27 years of his life. Messiah lost more than 20 years of his life in prison from his wrongful conviction. And, you know, neither of them were granted an absolute pardon. And it is for the Commonwealth. I'm very idealistic. And so I, what's right is right. And what's wrong is wrong. Like it, for my uh, opinion of things. Of course, when you grant absolute pardons, it, it also opens opens up the door to the Commonwealth being sued and people being held accountable for the misconduct that happened in those cases. And so, of course, I think that's probably part of the mindset that went in and not granting some absolute pardons, which, you know, for me is very disappointing because I know these people and I know how wonderful they are. You know, that being said, Governor Northam did a lot of good for a lot of people, and I'm very thankful for the things that he did. Like Sean said, there's a lot of certainty going into this next administration. You know, a lot of my friends that are incarcerated currently are terrified. You know, a lot of people have lost a lot of hope since Governor Yunkin has been elected. And, you know, I probably don't sound very positive right now, but I really do hope that I'm wrong. And I really do hope that people are given, you know, fair consideration during the next four years but all we can do is wait and see and keep fighting for what's right well on on that point you say wait and see what the what the new administration new administration does how long do you think it will take before we have an idea of how things are going to shake out with the new administration i'm going to try to be open-minded and i'm going to give them six months now if something crazy happens in the next two weeks my waiting period might be over. I don't know. I mean, I'll give it six months and, and see how things are going. That's all really we can do anyway, right? Is wait and see. We can try, we can try to engage. I mean, I'm certainly going to try to engage. I had some really wonderful relationships with the last administration. And of course, I want to get to know the new folks that are going to be coming into place and, and pray that they're reasonable and that they have, you know, open hearts and minds to giving people the opportunity for a second chance. I want that more than anybody. So, 
you know, we'll wait and see. What do you think, Sean? Are, do you have any optimism coming into this new administration? I think it's difficult to say. I, for me, I think the biggest ally or the biggest sort of on-ramp perhaps to getting some consideration for people that are incarcerated would be through the Lieutenant Governor's administration. And I'm going to, I'm going to give her the benefit of doubt. I'm going to be sure that we, I'm going to do my best to be sure that we hold her accountable. I believe that she wants to minister to the men and women who are incarcerated in Virginia and that she wants to see what is best for them. I hope that that will translate to certainly supports in within her agenda, even though the lieutenant governor doesn't actually patron bills. They certainly can have an agenda in concert with the governor and the attorney general. So I, I think that perhaps lieutenant governor Sears is going to be would be the angle I think that I would want to take as an advocate if I was not working sort of in the policy space, but more so in the advocacy, the individual advocacy space or advocating for for pardons and parole. I think that is the avenue that I would probably pursue to be able to sort of access the governor and maybe get the governor's ear a little bit because that is a member of the staff and, and, and it is the, the number two person in the state when the, the when they're not in session. So. Sean, what advice would you give to family members or, or advocates that are working on, on cases right now? What would you tell them to do? Good question. And I tell people all of this, and I don't think this changes from administration to administration. As an advocate, you need to make it, or as a loved one, as a family member, you need to make it your full-time job to get this person out. You need to send emails. You need to take meetings. You need to ask for meetings. You need to be persistent. You need to ask every person, not just your your representative or your delegate. You need to ask all of them. You need to build relationships with them. Don't just ask them for things. Don't just ask them to, to do something. Find out what's important to them. Find out what bills they're carrying and find out if you can support them. Learn about them. And more importantly, ask them to get to know your loved one. Ask them to get to know the person that you're fighting for. One of the most valuable lessons I learned in this, and, and Antonio Brown is, is a good friend, a fellow, a fellow person who had been pardoned. He got pardoned just before I did. We were at an event recently, and, and so, well, there was some back and forth with somebody that was fighting for pardon and wanted us to, to be advocates with the governor on this person's pardon. And, and Antonio said, look, I, the first lesson in this game is know who you're fighting for. And it was this person was asking us for to, to advocate for and fight for somebody that we didn't know anything about. And I'm uncomfortable doing that. I don't I, I don't know anything about that person because it's going to damage my credibility that I have, with, you know, in the, in the within the relationships that I have to fight for somebody that might not might not have earned it is sort of the bottom is not necessarily going to be a good candidate. Know who you're I guess my, my steps advice would be know who you're fighting for and then make it your full time job. Also, the person that's incarcerated that is seeking this consideration, because this is extraordinary consideration that you're asking for. So the person that's incarcerated, it needs to be their full-time job as well, earning that extraordinary consideration that you're asking for. Every decision that I made in prison, when I really buckled down and got my head on right and said, I, this is my goal, every I set out sort of two questions. Every decision that I made, I asked myself these two questions of, is this going to help me get my pardon? Or is this going to be help me be successful when I do get my pardon? And if the answer was no, 
I took a different path. So that's that's the advice I would give not only to the people that are advocating for loved ones or 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 incarcerated and seeking a pardon themselves. Those eleven executive orders that you know were done yesterday. You know, Miara's the new attorney general made some moves yesterday as well. Yeah, they're not wasting any time on the on the uh, especially on the campaign promises that they ran on, which is going to be kind of sad for a lot of people. But yeah, the new parole board. Um, I think yeah, most of the board on. members, most of the board members had resigned on the fourteenth. So what was the? There was an issue with the the parole board, the previous parole board, right? They were they were they weren't alerting victims' families or something. Is, was that as big a deal as it was made out to be? Well, there are a lot of allegations about what the board did or didn't do. Ultimately, it came down to one incarcerated individual, a man by the name of Vincent Martin. He was convicted of murdering a police officer. He spent forty years in prison. He was a man with an impeccable record. He quelled racial tension. They actually would move him from prison to prison to calm down the population during times of unrest. Um, he's a really remarkable man. I, I know him and, and our, our world is a better place because he's, he's free. But obviously with a, a crime against a law enforcement officer, a conviction against a law enforcement officer, it, it's a very big deal for someone like that to be released. They reviewed Mr. Martin's case and they actually released a four-page press release when they granted his parole, which is something the parole board generally doesn't do. And they basically said that they had reviewed his case and they didn't believe that he had committed the crime. And that's why he was released from prison. He wasn't exonerated, nothing like that, but he was granted parole. Everything sort of blew up. Of course, you know, the back the blue crowd and, and conservatives, I mean, understandably were concerned. From my perspective, instead of really looking into the case and reviewing some of the facts of the case, it was just this, we shouldn't have let a cop killer come home kind of thing. And there were news stories, I mean, that have really gone on uh, since, what would it have been, Sean, like May of 2020, somewhere in the summer or spring of 2020? It was right around there because he was released shortly before, right around the time where I got my pardon. I believe it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. So that, right. that makes sense. It was right around that time. Right. So the news stories blew up and then people started asking a lot of questions about that case specifically. And some other people came forward, victims, families came forward and said they weren't notified of certain things. There's been a investigation by the officer, the inspector general. There's been all sorts of things. Now the parole board in Virginia makes these decisions and their decisions are final. And so that, that was done. The new attorney general Jason Miares has said that he's going to do another full investigation into the parole board. And if there was any misconduct there, it would be a very big deal if the parole board was violating their own policies and if victims' families were not notified. My interaction with that parole board chair and, and that board was that they were doing their job and really looking deep into some cases that perhaps justice hadn't been served. But regardless, you know, perhaps some policies weren't weren't completely followed. I don't know. But that chair is, was no longer there. She resigned. Ever since then, it's been kind of a, a wildfire, really. It'll calm down for a minute, and then there's something more that happens. So uh, Governor Yunkin, when he was running, he basically said from the beginning he was going to fire the entire board day one. And the board resigned 
most of them anyway, before day one occurred. And now they've placed this new board heavy with law enforcement. There's a domestic violence and sexual violence advocate on the board. It looks like a former judge is on the board, you know, and maybe they'll all be very open-minded. I, I pray that they are, but it doesn't look like there's one person that's been in, in the criminal justice reform space or anything like that. The fact that there's not one person that's, you know, like a criminal defense attorney or an advocate or anyone that's worked in the criminal justice reform kind is of this space. Like, is this like donors are getting these positions? It's it's always been very much of a spoils position. It's usually like uh, state employees who've been, you know, earning, you know, middle management, you know, 50 to $80,000 a year type of positions, you know, lifelong, you know, that however, but like somehow or another favored, you know, the candidate, you know, favored the governor and Then, uh, and then got appointed because like your sat your retirement, your pension, your state pension is based on the average of your last three years of employment. So it gives you this big bump because you're an executive appointment. It gives you this big bump for your pension. So people will take three, five years of this time, bump their pension up, you know, and then, and then bail and then move into the private sector because then you're an executive appointment. Right. There's been, <clears throat> I think it's also important to point out too, there's been a lot of legislation during the last session trying to sort of they sort of nibble around the edges of bringing transparency to the board and and that's something that <clears throat> was a drum that was really beaten pretty heavily during the election of transparency with the parole board and it, it seems a bit ironic because advocates in this space have been screaming for transparency in the parole board and their decisions for a generation when nobody was getting out and no, nobody minded them being were operating in the dark when nobody was going home However, using Mr. Martin's case as sort of this catalyst or this flashpoint to to really go after the administration, the Northam administration and the parole board has seemed a bit disingenuous. And there's been a lot of legislation that's been introduced, again, that sort of nibbles around the edges that that says we want to publicize parole board's votes and some of these different things. However, if you look at just five years ago or five or six years ago, there's a case of uh, Bonnell Boyd where there was alleged misconduct that went all the way to uh, to the United States District Court. The entire parole process needs to be completely reimagined, torn down, and then rebuilt to create a transparent process where people get the appropriate consideration and all stakeholders are, are heard and their their positions are centered in the process. So I, I know we we won't know with this group coming in, but in a perfect world, if the entire parole board is turned over, that could be a good time to tear everything down, right? It, it certainly could be. It's going to take legislation to do that, and it's going to take a it's going to take the legislature stripping powers away from the governor, and then the governor signing off on that. And I'm not terribly optimistic that that would happen, but it certainly could. The The governor, if I was the governor, I wouldn't want anything to do with the parole process. The problem, one of the other problems with it right now is that it's a partisan process. The board is, is composed of appointments by the governor, who's a partisan actor, which means that they are probably partisan actors as well. And then they're given a mandate because they serve at the pleasure of, of the governor. So they serve at the pleasure of a partisan actor 
who sets their mandate. So getting the governor to sort of relinquish some power is going to be difficult because once you get power, it's hard to get a person to let go of it. We don't know enough about the individuals on the parole board to really break that down. Nor do I have any desire to being that I'm <laughs> going to go before them for my clients. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair Thank enough. you very much. <laughs> I'll be sending them all welcome emails though. Sure. Uh, Sean, do you, do you have any, anything, any closing thoughts before we, we can let you go here pretty quick? I think Lisa made a good point of reaching out to these people and welcoming them and simply not giving up. I see a lot of chatter on Facebook and amongst advocates who are simply saying, oh, it's we're doomed for four years. And you simply can't abandon your fight. You don't know what these people will do. Everything is ultimately reading tea leaves. There were people that Lisa and I were part of their their cases or, or part of their pardons or or part of their parole who we thought, well, this is going to be easy. Th- this person should go home. They, they didn't do it or they they have this exemplary record or, or all these different things that you just thought like, hey, this is going to be simple. And the decision went the opposite direction. And there were people that we knew that were that we saw get pardoned or saw get paroled. And we sort of shrugged our shoulders and shook our heads with our, our head in our hand of like, that, that guy got a pardon? That guy got paroled? So you just don't know. It, it, a lot of it's about relationships, and and Lisa made a point of, of of sort of building those relationships, building trust, building credibility with these members, because you want to, you got to take that shot. You're not going to get what you don't ask for. Well, I remember when McAuliffe left office, and that's when I faced my first huge disappointment in the advocacy space, and I was depressed for about. I don't know, three weeks, four weeks, didn't really want to get out of bed or whatever. And then Sean was still incarcerated, but we would talk all the time. And he gave me a suggestion of speaking to someone new and different about how to kind of revamp my efforts. And that was the thing that kind of helped me get back on the horse and get back out there again. You got to kind of take a little bit of a break and process what's happened and then start over again. And it's possible. You know, I saw people that missed out on pardons four years ago, but that were granted this time. And that could be true again in four more years or two years. You know, it's all at the discretion of the governor. And we don't know what's going to happen. A lot of it is just wait and see. We're speculating. So. And we might, and, and I know this, I don't want to get too far away from the topic, but one of the things I've been talking about a bit lately is how we really shouldn't be reliant on this pardon process anyway. It's extraordinary consideration and it's supposed to be extraordinary consideration. Again, like I mentioned earlier, we're expecting the governor, we're asking the governor to, to replace the judgment of the court with that of his own. And there should be a, a mechanism, there should be a process that allows somebody that's been incarcerated for a long time to have their sentence reviewed and reconsidered and taking into account all the the efforts at rehabilitation, the education, the change that they've experienced over the course of 
10 years, 15 years, 20, 25 years, people change. And not just the people that are incarcerated, the judges evolve in their thinking. Laws change. There's people that are incarcerated in Virginia right now for marijuana convictions. And it's not one, it's not only legal in Virginia, but Virginia is getting ready to start generating however many millions of dollars in revenue every year when they stand up the market. The robbery code has evolved. Six months ago, if you robbed somebody, or seven months ago, I guess, if you robbed somebody, whether you simply went up to somebody and said, give me all your money and didn't threaten them, didn't use a weapon or anything, or if you went and put a gun to their head, it was the same charge. You were subject to the same term of incarceration. That's changed. And so there's people that had these sort of, if you want to call it lower level rob robberies uh, that are serving these protracted sentences when now they would only be subject to a, a much shorter sentence. So there needs to be a mechanism put in place that addresses that, that allows a person to get a fair review without having to go through, without having to get executive action. And that also takes the onus off of the executive as well, to where they don't have to make a political decision, because that's ultimately what these pardons are. It puts it in the place of somebody, a judge who is appointed by the legislature that's not beholden to a reactionary public. That's where we believe the decision-making process should be, and a more fair, consistent, transparent, and accessible sentence review process or mechanism should, should and could take place. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. John, thank you so much for, for making some time and joining us. I know this was kind of thrown together last minute, but we wanted to take a snapshot in time as things are happening and, and kind of let the public know and how they might be able to continue their fight if they've got loved ones that are incarcerated. Well, thank you for thank you for having me. Glad to be here, and and I would encourage you during this 2022 General Assembly session to to watch legislation as it moves forward. There are a couple of bills that address some of these things that we're talking about today. Uh, I would encourage people to to follow that because that that will hopefully have some traction. It seems that people are getting really interested in it, so we're pretty excited about that. Cool. And with that, we'll let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sean. Hey, very welcome. Bye. Well, have a nice evening. You too, Sean. All right, bye -bye. All right, Lisa, lots of good stuff there in that interview. A lot of good things came up. I mean, what, what do you want to say to the people out there who are um, in the midst of a fight in the advocacy world? What I would say is this is a time to reset, to brainstorm about your strategy, to remember that every decision should be a strategic decision to move forward and to focus on your plan and to work your plan. If you don't know a lot about the new board members, I would say do some research. We'll have a PDF available on our website and in the show notes for folks to look at and, you know, Google their names, learn about them, see what, what you feel like may be a good selling point to these people when you go before them for advocacy meetings or, or wanting to meet them at, at events in the, in the coming years, you know, how you may connect with them. Ultimately, it's all about relationships in this space and, you know, stop wallowing and, and just focusing on the fear and frustration that you have right at this moment and figure out a plan to move forward. And I promise you that's going to serve your loved ones much more than anything else. Yeah. And, you know, this this entire conversation obviously was focused specifically on Virginia, but the 
everything that's been stated here is applicable wherever you are. Um, so we encourage you just to to keep the fight and yeah, reach out to us if you if you have any questions uh, about any of the work that we are doing or that you want to do. You know, we can you can find us on all of our social media. That'll be listed in the show notes as well. Contact us through our website. Our emails are there. Yeah, let's let's keep it up. <laughs> All right. That's it. That's the show. Thanks for listening. Bye. The Injustice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes and Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice Production. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.